but then they both use the same word, and in their head, I think they forget that the other people hear some other people hear something different than what they think of when they're saying it. Mm. I like that. I just asked you, like, is a hot dog a sandwich? And you're like, let me explain <laughs> capitalism from a Marxist perspective. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Mr. Bill podcast. My name is Robert Fumo. Today we have a banger of a show for you. Bill sat down with Tice DeFleeker. He is one of the three members of Noisia. Uh, Noisia is no more, but Tice is. Uh, they have all gone their own separate ways creatively, and Tice, as a DJ uh, and producer, is turning out all kinds of great stuff. Um, he's got a new shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder EP out on Vision with a pretty solid vinyl campaign going. If you're familiar with Noisia and Tice's contribution to that project, uh, he's definitely bringing that type of energy into his solo project. Definitely touring still, playing live shows, putting out music, and it definitely has his own individual flavor. Um, Mr. Bill... Uh, if you guys are familiar with him and his music and his production, uh, he wants to teach you how to do it. He's got a badass website, subscription-based, MrBillsTunes.com. He will teach you how to be a better music producer with the quickness, minimum payment monthly. He also has a ton of tour dates. April 15th, Portland, Oregon. April 22nd, Atlanta, Georgia. April 28th, Peoria, Illinois. April 29th, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. May 12th, Seattle, Washington. May 13th, Spokane, Washington. May 27th, Des Moines, Iowa. June 2nd, Bozeman, Montana. August 24th through the 27th in Waynesville, Montana. All of these can be found as far as tickets, locations, all at MrBillsTunes.com forward slash tour. Let me stop rambling and let you get to this interview with Tice DeFleeher, formerly of Noisia. Enjoy. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're 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 listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Um, cool, man. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Definitely a lot of people have asked, so it's, uh, it's good to finally get you on. Yeah, yeah. It took me a while to, to feel like, okay, now's the time, but <laughs> the time has come. Yeah, nice. Are you in the noisier studios right now? Yeah. Nice. Is that yeah. where you spend most of your time, basically? Uh, up until February, I wasn't here so much. And basically, I came back from Bali, and I've been here a lot. But I'm almost as comfortable, like, working on a laptop right now as mm. I'm here. Like, I finish at all the projects here, like, all the mixing, the, the final mixing stuff. But I really like just, you know, sitting on a couch with a laptop and Bluetooth mm. headphones. <laughs> yeah, uh, the... not, attached, not attached to anything. Yeah, the new M1 Max with the... Uh, the pro, what what do you call them? The M, the fucking headphones that they make, the M1 
AirPods Max. Oh, the, the AirPods yeah. Max, yeah. I haven't tried those yet. They're fucking good, man. They're really nice. I've, I've used them now for a <clears throat> couple of months. And yeah, especially with the noise cancelling, you can actually produce music yeah. on, a, on a plane and it's like not that bad. Yeah. Yeah, I'm using the Sony XM4. Uh, also, the noise cancelling on them is, is better than the AirPods. Oh, That's really? the reason I'm using those. And I like Sony always has good sound. It's just, it's not like actual production quality, but um, they're comfortable and the noise quality, the noise cancelling is so good that I just like end up using them all the time. So just, yeah, yeah, totally. I think whatever makes you more excited to work is honestly more important anyway. In the yeah, end. 100%, 100%. Yeah. I've had studios that are like incredibly sterile before and while I can do good work in there, it's not as fun sometimes as just making music like on a, you know, little polyan tracker through a Bluetooth speaker yeah. or something. <laughs> sometimes you get yeah. better results that way. Yeah. 100%. <clears throat> cool, man. Well, um, yeah, I took a bunch of questions from people on the internet and they had a ton of stuff they wanted me to ask you. So we'll go through all of that. I also listened to that podcast you sent me. Um, uh, cool. And one of the, th the points that I wanted to chat about is DJing. Uh, you, you mentioned like the difference between DJing as a producer versus like an actual DJ. And you also mentioned one hour of a set being not long enough, whereas I kind of have the opposite. I mean, I <laughs> always pr produce as a, uh, sorry, DJ as a producer. Uh, just, I've just never really been a DJ. I've always just made tracks and then played them sort of as a means to an end really to make money so I can produce more tracks. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, yeah. I feel the opposite, man. I feel like an hour is is a long time, <laughs> whereas you were saying yeah. you, you prefer like two hours minimum. Yeah, it depends. It depends on the tension span of the crowd. It depends a lot of like the curation and the lineup of the rest of the evening. Like if every, like Friday at the vision party, I played 16 minutes and I think there it wouldn't have really worked to play two hours. 19 minutes I would have been happy with because then I could have, like, I went down a bit in tempo but not really in energy because I didn't feel the freedom to, to like, kind of, like, paint with some colors. Like, mm. I just had to keep it hype because I was after Gyrofield before more kids met. So I just needed to keep everyone, like, up. And what I like to do is like start up go down and build up again but you need at least 90 uh, minutes for that and with the 140 130 music like two hours is also the the thing in that genre is that it's really okay for a dj to just like play a tune wait for four minutes five minutes and, and play the next one and just let the tune tell its own story whereas where i'm originally from from drum and bass the culture is to play like at least another song every minute. Mm. So you end up with like playing 50, like in Noisia sets, I would play 50 tunes in an hour. Yeah, I mean, that's what I do with Mr. Bill sets as well. And I think in dubstep these days, that's kind of like the given, especially with like the new rhythm culture where people are playing like four tracks at a time and stuff like that. Um, yeah. If you count the four tracks at a time, then it's really like three or four times 50 because they're constantly just triggering other stuff and playing tracks over the top yeah. of one another. I um, think some of that has to do with like performance anxiety of like I need to do something. I need I need my hands. I, I need to look like I'm do some doing something. Otherwise, people see that I'm a fraud or they see right through me or they actually see me. 
I don't want them to see me. I want them to see mm. busy me. I want those like it's just the brain like looking for an escape. Mm. I don't know. At least that's that's what I feel when when I see these kind of super busybody DJs uh, that are constantly like doing something, and um, then sometimes you watch them is like what you're doing is nothing. Like I, right, but that's the anxiety right there, isn't it? It's like you're getting paid money, uh, you've been flown across the country or across the world, you're standing on this stage. There is, I think, some sort of anxiety to be like, well, why am I even here? Like, what is my worth here if I'm not touching yeah. anything and I'm just playing something and standing here? And especially if it's already a released track, like, <clears throat> you know, people could just listen to this through the sound system without me standing here, but for some reason need like a yeah, person that, that standing misses, on the stage. I get it. I get it. I I always had this kind of flip from introvert to extrovert on stage, so I never really had to deal with with those feelings. Luckily, um, but you, if if that is your thought process, you're really missing why people are really there because they're there to have fun with a group of people, to be all there together, to forget about their daily life for for a bit. They're really not there to watch someone be excellent. You know, mm -hmm. it's not like you're going to a Steve Vai concert to watch someone play a lot of notes per second and everybody in the audience also plays guitar. And it's just like about, you know, the notes per minute rate. It's like DJing for me isn't about that and shouldn't be about that. It should really about be about curating uh, moods so that people have uh, a nice experience over a time span of four to seven hours. Um, so you're also like part of a bigger story uh, in the lineup. Uh, it's not just about you. Um, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, absolutely. The, 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 the I, I agree larger, with you. the larger story of the of the evening. Totally. Yeah, and I, I also think that there is an argument to be made that uh, doing a better job as a DJ is really just being good at waiting and being mm -hmm. a good librarian. That's kind of the two like main points I think that I've noticed that makes yeah. somebody a pretty good DJ. And have the capacity to be like emotionally and mentally open on stage so right. that you are aware of what's happening and you're not just like blindly following your own path. Mm. And I've played I've played sets where I knew I was taking risks. So I really had to ignore what what the world around me was telling me because I'm like, yeah, no, but I'm trying to make a statement here. Like I know this might be not the most popular choices, but I'm like, this is education or expression. <laughs> and then like I had to close myself down. But ideally, you're not playing for people that disagree with your views. You're playing for people that are curious for whatever you have to bring. And in that scenario, you can you can afford to stay uh, emotionally open and look around and be like, yeah, we're all doing this. Like, I'm leading the ceremony, but this is our ceremony. It's not just mine, it's yours. And it's not just yours, it's mine, right? That's that's what I see as the ideal, ideal DJ set where it becomes like a shamanic ritual where there's one shaman, but he's not, like, cooler than the rest, you know? He's just good at leading, or she, or they, whatever. They're good at leading, but the point of of the evening is not to come and and see how good this person is leading the ceremony. The point the the the, the point of the evening is to experience the ceremony. Mm. 
Yeah, for me personally, I, I like I said, I take a really producery approach to sets. I don't actually like go in with no plan. I go in with actually a hundred percent of a plan and yeah. leave myself honestly very little room for improvisation. I, I build the whole set in Ableton and like have tons and tons of layers. And then I stem it out basically where like, you know, one stem might be like each track is basically a, like a stem um, for lack of a better term. And there ends up being like, you know, 60 or 70 stems. And I just have to hit my cue points at certain times and then mess around with effects on the mixer. And at times I've felt like that's a little bit of a cop out, <clears throat> but also I think like the way that I justify it is it's kind of my, my duty as somebody who's being booked to play shows and paid a bunch of money to go do it that, um, that I should be, uh, bringing like an, like a really good tight show to, to people. And if I leave myself, uh, you know, open to just DJing and doing whatever I feel like more often than not, I'll probably train wreck cause I don't even own CDJs. <laughs> so I don't really know what I'm doing on them anyway. Um, yeah. But still people want to see me play a show. So I have to like kind of bridge the gap between those two opposing sort of ideas. Yeah, I get that. I get that. If, if you really don't see yourself as also like it really needs to, to trigger you and, and, like tickle your curiosity like you need to want to explore djing as a as an expression form uh rather than than production and if you don't have that curiosity yeah i mean good on you for still taking on those shows and and doing it professionally it's it's yeah i, it's I don't something. have judgments for it i because i really like i lived close to people that do the same but I'm talking about an ideal scenario where someone like me is really comfortable in the studio, but also on stage and and wants to kind of engage uh, in the ceremony more. Mm. Uh, and and I think for that, this kind of emotional openness um, is crucial. But yeah, I, I play a lot of sets where I can't afford that. Because either right, I'm yeah. super tired or like annoyed by something or mm. the crowd isn't feeling it and I'm like, shit, I'm just trying things and nothing works. And then at some point you just close down. It's like, well, if nothing works, like then I'm just going to do my thing. And mm. then, yeah, what helps is then to single out a couple of people that seem to be having a good time and be like, okay, from <laughs> now on, I'm only playing for you if you like this. That is my, you know, that is my goal for you, the five of you to stay and have a great time tonight. <laughs> so what does like set prep look, look like for you then? If you, if you're doing this sort of more open form of DJing, does it more look like just sitting around, like looking through your, your music library and just like queuing everything in record box, basically, regardless of whether or not yeah. you think you're going to play it and then just like yep. logging hours on, on the decks at home, basically. Yeah. 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 And sometimes, like, there are songs that, that you're like, oh, my God, this one. Like, I have a new one with Nicky Nair, and it's really tough to mix in because the way it starts, the way the track starts is such a mood shift from almost everything. So that one, you need a combo with something neutral that that can come out of any other song, and but that leads into the other one. So then I try to look for combos. But I try not to like plan the 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 start and the, and the finish. But I usually I usually do have like a 
an opening combo just so that my initial oh shit I'm doing it like the first five ten minutes mm. I'm actually yeah I know in advance like I'm prepared for that I might have one opening if I really know what the mood will be I might have a couple of options of openings but then I like to like just kind of feel uh, feel what the mood is and um, uh, improvise especially like in, in longer format sets Right. So when mixing, say, something like <clears throat> that Nicky Nair collab that you said is kind of tough to mix, uh, do you write the track specifically with the idea of it being sort of malleable and flexible in the intro and outro for mixing, or do you do edits to the track afterwards to to try and make it easier to mix, or do you just write the track how it should be and then accept that it's a challenge to mix and then just move on with it? It it depends. Like this section in that track is really like no, but it has to be like this. Like and mm. it's the whole point of, of that track is it's a very happy kind of jazzy thing. And the whole point is that melody and that melody's always gonna uh be a challenge and I don't wanna add a boring, boring mix intro. But then like I've just gone in on some club music that I wrote after playing it or, uh, or practicing with it and realizing like, oh shit, I was filtering in the uh, the vocal because that sounds nice when I'm producing. But actually when I'm DJing, I want that full unfiltered vocal so that I can filter it live and kind of adapt it to where it needs to be in the set. And I don't want to have these these filter movements already baked in mm. or or lengths of intros where I just had a 16 bar intro which made a lot of sense for me when I'm writing the song and then I play it it was like shit now I have to re-cue it and then it doesn't like continue it kind of reboots the the fade in or the filter in so oh shit I need to double the length of these intros but I only yeah I still still make the mistake of uh not writing for even for my own DJ sets I find out like shit I I mess it up mm. So I assume then for the tie sets that you've been doing in this way, you're not doing like synced AV type stuff. Cause I think for that kind of stuff, you sort of need to just like have a set planned. Right. And then yeah. everything has to be sort of triggered via some sort of control message. I, I've been s even saying to the lights person, like, can you just make it very dark and only <laughs> in, in, in very specific moments, uh, like use some flashing, like strobes or white strobes or like a, a bit of red light. But it wasn't like this in Melkweg. I kind of for, forgot to talk and I wasn't included in the conversation about the stage design, but I thought it was way too bright. Like For, for which show uh, was this? It's uh, the the show I played last week uh, at Vision. That's oh, gotcha. uh, the whole stream. The, the whole stream is on YouTube as well. It was oh, just cool. uploaded on, on Monday. But the lights were really bright, and like if you're in the crowd, you could constantly see everyone around you. And I, I like it when you're like you have this kind of fog of war around you that you see like five people deep, and beyond that, you know that people are there, and you know that they're listening to the same thing as you, and you know that they're probably in the same mood as you because the, the music is kind of triggering the moods for you. But you don't see them, and and you that gives you this on the dance floor this kind of freedom and uh it's not anonymity it's like they're there but they're not watching me right 
it, it kind of reinforces the, 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 the thought that nobody's judging you while you're dancing, which is kind of crucial for, for a dance floor to kind of leave, leave behind your, uh, self-awareness and just kind of dissolve into, into the crowd and kind of dissolve into the experience of, of the music. And for me, for me, like visuals, like audiovisual stuff, it just brings you back into the brain where I, I kind of like want to leave the brain and bring people into the body a bit more. And this whole like the visual stimulus for me is like, if anything, I want people to see people, other people, because that's what for me, like currently where I'm at, like obviously when we did Outer Edges, it was a super audiovisual show. But for me, DJing, even Noisia shows, like I wanted people on stage. Like for me, the last Noisia show at Lowlands was the best Noisia show ever because everybody that we liked, we we brought so many friends and they were all on stage around us kind of experienced the same thing in real time with us, very close. I could hear them, I could feel them, they could come up to me and slap me on on the on the shoulder if I did a good mix, if I played an unexpected tune. And for me, this thing of like people, people is the point of music, not like impressing people with uh, with visuals and 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 loud sounds, but it's making making uh, facilitating like I think it's a primal need what people express in club music. Mm. Uh, through club music, the experience is is a primal need. It's like people that maybe church used to be uh, this the same thing. Kind of, you know, you lead your own life, you do a job, but once every week or something, you want to come together and experience something together, and then dissipate again and and do your own thing. And I think club music really, and 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 most of these things. Oh, sports is another like professional sports fandom is another thing like there's always music at these things at church mm. at 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 sports there's always music i don't think that's a uh a coincidence yeah, it's totally. really like a primal necessity for people especially since we're not living in in villages or clans or communities like tightly knit communities anymore most of us live kind of like individualized lives then this club music fills fills a need and that's yeah. So so for me, all the audiovisual, all the kind of impressiveness is like it's actually taking away from what I care about, which is the music. Yeah, and, that's fair. and the people, people's experience of the music. Right. Yeah. The way I've always looked at the audiovisual stuff is not so much as like an extra facet to try and impress people or anything like that. Um, I actually since seeing Amon Tobin's Izam show, I was like, that's genius. Now I understand the music more because I can see some sort of like graphic that's moving towards it. And like having that extra bit of like sensory input helps me like understand the movements yeah. in the music a little bit better in like these rhythmic ways and whatnot that I wasn't necessarily hearing before that he obviously was hearing and was saying, all right, when I hear this sound, I want to see like a big thing like crank. And then when I hear this other sound, I want to see like this piston puncher thing and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, whereas when I listened to that song at home, I was like, ah, oh, it's cool. It's a bunch of weird sounds. But when I went and seen it live, I was like, oh, it's a giant mechanical rhythmic machine, you know? Yeah. And I think in certain, uh, types of music like that, uh, and even not certain types of music like that, where it's just sound designing, 
it can just give people like an extra dimension of parts of the music to connect to or even something else to connect to that's not necessarily in the music or the visuals but in the rift between the two that their brain sort of makes up the difference of and then they're yeah. able to be like oh there's like this extra rhythm or this extra like depth to it there that i wasn't necessarily experiencing before that's in my opinion the main point of what i think visuals should be doing yeah. in a show i mean i go in cycles so when we were doing outer edges we were all about the audiovisual stuff and now i'm all about like now now cut the screens and dim the lights mm -hmm. and put a lot of smoke in the room so that people can be themselves and people don't even need to like watch me like i like i like it when people's backs are towards the dj because it really means that they're doesn't mean that they don't care it means that they're like focused on each other which mm -hmm. i think for me is way more the point of club music than uh than this kind of almost unidirectional like i project you absorb kind of thing mm. um yeah over the years uh, like my my music style has changed a bunch and it's changed a bunch basically because of shows like i used to play a lot of glitchy idm type stuff and now these days i'm all played dubstep but when I was playing all of that glitchy IDM stuff, I found it really tough to play to those crowds because they would just sort of stand and stare. And that didn't necessarily mean they're having a bad time. It just meant they were potentially enjoying themselves inside their head. And that type of music isn't really designed yeah. for dancing anyway. But I, I think like the only way you can tell like 100% almost or like 99% for sure that somebody is having a good time is if they're just like losing their shit and dancing and stuff like that. And I've, yeah, yeah I feel like that's some type of emotional resilience that I don't have, but you kind of need to have a bit as a DJ. Yeah, it is important to to not make everything about yourself. Like when someone is not visibly showing you that they're having a good time, then it's... I get it. I mean, when we played drum and bass shows in America 10 years ago, it was it was tough. It was very tough. Like, And we didn't have... I didn't feel the freedom to like, okay, then I'll play what they do like. It's really like, no, I'm here to play drum and bass. But it wasn't like, it's it's different now. I think a lot of people basically over COVID got uh, somehow uh, educated and the same sound that was foreign before is now, uh, seems seems to be accepted, which is great. I'm I'm happy to see it. It's kind of sad that, you know, I played... The best shows, I think, as Noisia were the, like the last two shows, like the farewell shows in, in Los Angeles and New York were, they were phenomenal. Like the the LA one with that incredibly epic picture. I don't know if you know the picture, but this picture of this really a light moment in a very full room. And um, damn, I forgot the venue in New York. And in brooklyn kind of a bigger venue but it was really full for drum and bass and i was like what is this this is new <laughs> um but yeah before we were struggling and it's yeah it, it really takes some kind of resilience to be like yeah but we're doing it you know we're <laughs> repping drum and bass and it's not like at home where we're packing out venues this is right. america but yeah you i mean in in to some extent, you really do need to, like, you have, you need to have a shield, but also believe that, you know, this might not be in the moment the most popular thing, but it is the right thing you're doing. Yeah, I think if it's true to yourself and it's what you truly enjoy uh, and you don't necessarily 
feel like you need to pander to other people to get their sort of uh, you know respect or attention. Yeah. Um, that yeah, definitely is the right thing to be doing. Uh, speaking of like the noisier final shows, um, <clears throat> a bunch of the questions on the internet was why did noisier call it quits? Um, well, we 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 met around nineteen ninety eight. I think so that's 25 years ago mm -hmm. and people grow people change and we grew and we changed and we started liking uh different things and the like the center between the three of us was just getting stretched further and further and it was just it was costing us more and more effort to keep the centers some kind of stable to the point where it just wasn't enjoyable anymore um to constantly argue for like yeah no but i want to i want to go this way no i want to go this way so at some point it was just uh not worth it anymore like mentally emotionally the energy of staying together was just ruining our friendship as well whereas now mm. we're like buddies again like two weeks ago we had a weekend where we slept in the studio and played games and had drinks and smoked weed and uh, uh, and our high school friends were all here and all all of the vibe is back together uh, so yeah I don't know it's it's for us it's really a good thing mm. yeah I definitely and think it's, like it's more I don't important know, to like, have friends than a musical project if you if you know a couple that split up after 20 years being together they're like wow still you know 20 years that's a good run man <laughs> Do you still mm. like each other? Like, are you still friends? And then if the answer is like, yeah, we, I mean, but when I waved before, that was my time coming in, right? So mm. I still have a studio with the two of them. Like, right, right. We like we didn't end the friendship, and we still have uh, this this funny Dutch uh, rap project together that has been kind of on hold, but uh, it's not like we didn't quit that. Like, we still want to do things together. We still have a lot of fun together. Mm. Yeah, what were the main challenges that came up where when you were writing music with three people and were there ever like entire songs that were just completely written off because of creative differences and stuff like that? Um, well, actually, some of those made it to the third album because um, we mellowed down a bit for it and we were really like... Before that, we always felt like it was our duty to push the sound and to do something that hadn't been done before and for closer. Because the the decision to stop Noisia, we made it in 2019, early 2019. And by the time we were really writing the album, it was already two and a half years later. Mm, gotcha. So we we had gotten used to the notion of that it was over and and really made peace with that, and then from that peace came like but okay but then if if it's over, like we can do it one more time like we used to, not trying to push it forward. I mean obviously we push it forward like we're we're still three artists and we still get new ideas, but not like the sound has to step up uh and take a new direction which for us was always uh, a thing and for closer we were really like no let's just have fun let's get our friends in let's do a, 
another song with with Sonny. Let's send some friends some beats that we were struggling with. So uh, the Halogenics collab, Wordless, the <clears throat> the Imanu collab, those were things that we'd written off because we just couldn't find a way to come back to your question to finish them. And even a track like Tentacles is was had been a sketch for a very long time and I was basically not feeling where the sketch was the how it was grooving so I'd just sit there and we'd try to change things and I'd play games and while Nick was changing things and Nick would play games while I was changing things and and then after a week we're like yeah well no and then a couple of months later same thing and no and then when we were doing uh, Outer Edges um Nick had made this intro to it which made it like such a thing that we started like oh my but now we have to finish it and then I I really simplified it into this kind of jump up territory it's like well maybe this kind of funny super simplicity is is the way to go and then we live with that for a bit and then we're like yeah actually actually this is it you know because before that it was just like super sound designy neuro textury kind of ASMR kind of uh, bass sound that was just over all of it. And if you listen to the old versions, then you can still hear that some of that texture is still in there, but it's like super simplified. Um, yeah. Also, I feel like if you just have that sort of neuroy like ASMR bass texture thing all the time, it kind of becomes like normalized. Yeah. And yeah. Then all of a sudden your ears no longer by the end of an album or the end of a set go like, whoa, that's like mega crazy sound design. You're just like, that's a fucking baseline at this point. <laughs> and yeah. sometimes like when it gets to that point, the simpler, the like you, for instance, in like a set, right? You can play a lot of like very dense, like sound designy Foley based stuff and whatnot. And eventually sometimes the the more effective thing at the, the, those points can just be playing like an 808 with like 100%, you know, person 100%. singing over it or something. No, and I really don't get DJs that that don't use this dynamic. Mm. It's like the I don't know, for me the coolest coolest use of that rhythm sound lately has been when Fortet Fortet drops it out of context. <laughs> but then if he would drop a second one after that, there's no shock. Right. Like once you've established like this is kind of the noise level and then you break it that's a, like a huge impulse to the brain. and But then if you do that same kind of... If you then bring it back to nim, minimal, the brain gets an impulse again. And, and then if if you keep... Like, I don't get the the crowds that want to hear that the same loud drum and bass neuro sound for five, 60-minute sets after each other. And then if someone dares to break it down and play a different tempo or a different kind of mood, they're like, what... I come here for my loud drum and bass. It's like, but you've had that for for four hours now. You don't need a break. Apparently, I, I, apparently, like people are uh, really into that. So, uh, yeah, I guess um, people are just really different. But I don't get it myself. Yeah, I no, think that way. I definitely I think, like a lot of diversity for sure. And then the loud and the aggressive and and the textures are way more effective if if they come from a longer story where that stuff wasn't used and if you just have this smashing thing all it it's super like it super inflates the value of it 
What, what do you think noisy it would have sounded like without you? And what do you think that you added to it that the other guys don't have? And what do you think the other guys added to it that you don't have? I, that's so hard to say, man. Like I learned, we learned to put everything together, right? All the technical, all the, like bringing, just in the early days, bringing each other tunes that, that would uh, really excite us. Like we, we, we kind of shaped our own sound role together. And then after that, also found out like, how do we do that on our limited equipment? Because we didn't have all the emu samplers and hardware synth and uh, and uh, like m mixing desks and stuff. We just, we had to find out how to do that, how to get as close as possible to that on just the PC, because that's what we had. Um, which back then, like in the in the late 90s, no one was in drama bass was trying what we were trying to do it all in the box. Like, it's very obvious now that you do it all in the box, but for us that was a big challenge to get that kind of sound. Uh, I think one thing I keep stressing in interviews, what I think maybe people miss is that Noisia is is and was very rhythm focused groove focused it's like people tend to remember the sound design but for me it's all about the 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 grooves and the rhythm play and the intricacies in that and i think it's not so much who does what as as what happens when you when you put three people that are a bit or are very picky and are not enthusiastic about a lot what if you put them in a room and make sure and 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 the res the results like the output is only what they all three can kind of sign off on right it's like it has to go through the filter of all three of you then it's always going to yeah. come out the other end with that filtration kind of yeah and then you start to learn each other's filters and you start to write to each other's filters like okay within the context if I put on my noisier hat I'm going to write it like this because I think that is something that you know could be noisier-ish right because like, I like it's it it's not going to be like wasted time basically because you know it's going to like go past the other filters as well kind of yeah which is also exhausting after a while uh, uh, if you have a lot of love for other things uh, and you know that it just won't pass their filters. And what's also ex exhausting is writing to like kind of to other people's filters and then finding out that they, they can't bring enthusiasm. It's like, it's not like it's totally shit and, and you should not pursue this, but it's just like sometimes you're just annoyed with something, with, with something else and it's just really hard to be nice. Mm. And then that it can be so disheartening when you're like, yeah, but I just made this. I like this. Oh, okay, so now it's useless because you don't like it. Shit. Um, well, time is like a non-renewable thing, right? Like all humans only get X amount of years on the planet. So if you invest eight hours of your time into something, it automatically has this like actual in like inherent value to it to you because it's it's encapsulated yep. eight hours of your life. So to you, it's worth eight hours of time, which is a lot. Um, whereas to somebody else, if they haven't put any effort in and then they spend two seconds just going like, ah, fuck it, that sucks. To you, that's that can be yeah, obviously really offensive. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, and and you get, you know, you develop sensitivities because you know maybe you can predict that they won't like something that you're into and then, uh, yeah. So when you get into that kind of dynamic, like either you need a a very long uh, conversation and and a kind of reset uh, of things or just... Uh, just acknowledge that you know your best collaborative years are behind you because you're supposed to bring out the best uh, in each other. That's, and I I find now being solo that I collaborate a lot because I I prefer my own skill set in a collaboration over solo. I have some solo songs, and it's not like I can't do it. And I end up mostly doing the technical stuff on all the uh, collaborations that I do also because I have this room, so it's really easy for me, at least easy. Um, but the way I grew my ears over the, the last decades and then having this room, it's like also pretty obvious that I would do the mix down mm-hmm. and the sound design and like judging how loud the kick needs to be and how much distortion uh, needs to be on the on the drums, those kind of things. Um, but doing it by myself is just not as inspiring and I find my brain just comes up with way cooler things when I am surprised by other people's input rather than when I react to my own kind of reactions. Yeah, it's kind of like you can't tickle yourself because there needs to be a point of dislocation and unexpectedness for you to like actually tickle yourself. I'm curious as to how many points of dislocation you would need. Like for instance, if you had a finger and when you moved it this way, it actually moved the finger the other way. If like that would still be able to tickle yourself. And I would assume not Mm because your brain's probably able to just flip it. But I think like maybe two or three points of dislocation and then you might be able to tickle yourself. Someone needs to make gloves for this. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a bit why I use modular because it's mm. it's, it's like a bit linear and kind of it's weird. a bit unpredictable. It's the physical thing about it that really drew me towards it. Like I I honestly haven't turned it on for months. Yeah, so that's I sometimes how, look how at it as like <laughs> yeah, and I like I've I'm really happy. I, I'm not into collecting modules anymore. I really am like no, but I have everything or whatever. I don't have everything. I have enough. You know, if mm-hmm. if I want to make new weird sounds like go for it there's so much there but i'm really i don't know i'm really in 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 more of a writing like composing uh cycle right now where i just write songs and use i i tend to use very basic elements lately and then just really fine-tune the distortion on it saturation and the mix so that it really sounds super crunchy and lush but actually just using very, uh, n- not very special sounds, I think. Or, and I really like using classic sounds right now because I'm like, I see the 909 open hi-hat and the 808 uh, kick drum and the 808 clip, clap, and some of these kind of like jungle breaks and some of these uh, 90s rave stabs that everybody knows the sound of. It's like... If people also stop using that and playing the old records, then all of a sudden that culture is dead. It's like the the, the original uh, uh, meaning of the word meme is like a gene, but then uh, in an idea, like an idea form. Now it's a funny joke on the internet or a funny image, but it used to be uh, 
like genetic information is genetic and memetic information is basically just information that spreads uh, spreads itself and I see some parts of club music a bit like if people stop using those sounds and it dies so it's kind of also my job in a way to perpetuate this this culture that was you know given to us uh by our forefathers you know and and to some I'm one of them but I also of the forefathers but I also very see myself as you know as a child that is still learning and and making Mm. And I I want to bring things uh, into the future. Who were the like forefathers for you uh, when you were getting into this stuff in 1999? Uh, Martin's leaving. Um, Prodigy is the biggest influence. Um, growing up, my early years, it was more... Uh, the commercial side of dance music that would make it into into my world because I, I wasn't actually we were all not ravers until we started like DJing we really we really didn't even know there was a much of a scene in our city for the music that we were already listening to and making we didn't know uh we we actually found like at Russian Optical Wormhole, we found it in the library in the public library. That's where we found some of our first drum and bass was in the library, looking for like cool electronic music. Um, but I did know the Prodigy, and I was listening to a lot of uh, uh, Fat of the Land and uh, Jilted Generation. And then when our drum and bass love affair. Be- begun it was mainly uh at russian optical cause for concern stack and skynet ram trilogy and uh conflict kamal and rob data and matrix and fierce those really really shaped our sound like that's what we were obsessively listening and just want to get that funk down want to get that sound design down want to get that uh mystery uh, and the mood of drum and bass and by the time we kind of made it to where people were booking us that's that's sound was really out of vogue like it was really about jump up Mm. it's funny how these cycles go because i think we led away for it where in in which like this neuro this dark sound became more popular again and then now the the jump up is back i think always though the common thread between all these cycles of music and genres and all of that stuff is that they always have some sort of like uh like strong emotional thing that you can hook onto you know whether it's a dark song or a light song or a jump up song or a big anthem with a big riff or anything there there always seems to be like in in my opinion the one connecting thing through them all is like some strong identity about the track like a repeating vocal or a re- repeating synth weird sound or something like you know just something that like yeah. gives it an identity and allows somebody to be like it's that tune and they're able to hum it to their friend or be like it's the tune with that horn duck sound in it or 
whatever thing. Yeah. And I, I think like if a track has like an extremely strong character like that, it kind of doesn't matter what genre it is, people can connect to it in some way or another, whether it's like a negative connection or a positive connection. Yeah. So you make like a lot of genres and stuff. When when you're making a track, <clears throat> um, do you often go like, oh, I'm going to make like a whatever jump up thing or something like that and then end up making an ambient song? Or do you sometimes like start being like, oh, I want to make an ambient song and then end up making a house tune? Or are you pretty good at being like, I have an idea and then sitting down and just making that idea? It really varies. It really varies. But usually when you find like the segue that is more... Uh, this, if the side path is more exciting than the path that you thought you were on, then definitely, definitely go for it. I mean, maybe save save a new version, and but just just pursue it and and waste those eight hours. Because even even if you don't end, end up keeping it, like you always learn something. Like there's no such thing as wasted time making things. You always pick up something, and you can always just bounce out some samples for, for you to reuse later um, I don't know it's not often that I really already have a song in my head it's just messing around with usually some kind of like some sometimes there's a genre that I want to make, but then usually I I fail, and then it goes somewhere else, and then uh, a couple of days later I'm like, oh maybe I could combine it with this, and then all of a sudden there there is some life to it, whereas before I was just blocking. Mm. Yeah, I don't know many people who have an endless stream of song ideas in their head i think to be truly reliably creative you need to basically be able to generate some sort of stimulus for yourself to react to that is unexpected and like yeah. you were saying before you do that sometimes through modular synthesis or having other people in the room like collaborators or even collaborating online and stuff like that um yeah i find the same thing it's like i, I can't reliably create music every day if I just come in and say like, I'm going to make a song, I'm going to make a song, I'm going to make a song. It has to be, yeah. I'm going to try this idea, like this technical synthesis idea that I read about, or I'm going to like try throwing a bunch of shit into this like GPU on the cloud and seeing what AI spits out today or like whatever. Yeah. Right. And, and, and that will then become some sort of like weird stimuli for my brain to be like, Oh shit, didn't expect that. And then all of a sudden I'll be like, well, that gives me this idea. And then another thing will give me another idea. And it just ends up being like some chain reaction of shit that yep. eventually leads to a song. Hopefully speaking of AI, how, how are you feeling about the whole AI thing? Have you messed around with AI and music much yet? I was a very early adopter. Like you have these, uh, these Jay-Z and Kanye vocal, uh, imitation things now. Mm-hmm. But I think the first model, one of the first models that was really trained on one specific person's voice was this Holly Plus thing by Holly Herndon. And they told me that, that I was the first outside of like the programmers and themselves, uh, the first person to, to mess around with that thing. And basically it was a web interface and you threw it some audio and then it would spit it back at you like, this is what I think Holly Herndon singing your music would sound like. <laughs> um, and it was really grainy, 
but really, really usable, really cool. Like I, the first song on the first track on my label, Eccentric Circle, the Holly Leeds Anne with the Waltz, is that. It's like all the vocals are from um, that AI machine trained on Holly Herndon's voice. Mm. Um, I don't know. It's it's a bit too early. Like we're seeing a lot of things built to make things easier, and it gets interesting when when the results come from people who then make things way more complex. Because that's what artists do. Like most technologies is is designed to make things easier, and then artists take it and make it way more complex. And that's where it becomes interesting again, and that's where the actual potential of the of the technology the technology starts kind of expanding. Mm. whereas what you see now like all, a lot of the products that are being made for producers are to make things easier and that's great but the point of progress is then to find a new level of complexity uh, hidden hidden under there that uh, and that's what I'm excited about I'm not I'm just really excited about just making basic drum computer grooves on um uh, my MacBook or studio computer to then play them out for groups of people. Like I really found found back so much joy in just making simple DJ music and just just imagining how people will react to it. Like I'm really in a super non-technical phase of music production where I'm really about, I want to make fun club stuff. I'm also working on this other uh, project where I might do an installation in uh, in large churches in in Netherlands or potentially outside of the Netherlands. I might have to build an instrument for this, like a physical instrument that I can tr- control with uh, with electronics. But that's a big maybe. So I'm also like doing other stuff, and I'm still sitting on. Well, the, I, I composed a movie, the score for a movie that's still to be released. So Can I've, you I've say got which a, movie it is? It's an Italian art movie called Mycelia, but okay, it's okay. it's super unreleased. Like they're 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 looking for um, 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 a platform to do the premiere at. Um, I did it together with my friend Salvador Breit, uh, who does uh, a lot of very cool music How stuff. How is too. it scoring a movie in Italian? Because I assume you don't speak Italian, right? There's not a lot of speech in it, and my Italian is sufficient, so I okay, could really, cool. I, I really understood what they were saying most of the time. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, Italian is pretty was pretty easy for me to pick up uh, because I knew French and Latin from high school, and then going to France as a DJ, I kind of kept the France the France department of my brain kind of active, mm. and then at some point started going to Italy more. Went went on Duolingo for a while and it was just really easy. Mm. And uh, yeah, I currently have an Italian partner, so she watches mm-hmm. a lot of uh, a lot of TV, and then uh, I just am constantly exposed to the Italian. It's cool. Mm. Nice. Yeah, you went it's to a like nice a... thing. Nice thing to learn uh, to learn a new language for the yeah. brain. <laughs> yeah, I should. I mean, I've tried. I went to Spain for three or four months when I was teaching at Berkeley. And I, I didn't pick up anything. I found it so <laughs> tough to pick up Spanish. I picked up like I was able to like say my address where I was staying, and that's about it. Right. 
just to tell like a taxi driver, like, I don't know where I am. Get me to this place. <laughs> yeah. It's easy when you're, when your mother tongue is like the language of the world. It's, and I find a lot of people that move to Groningen, like I know a lot of people in the dance world, they, they, they struggle learning Dutch because everyone speaks English to them. Like right. it's, it's so easy for them to switch to English. Oh yeah. Hmm. Um, somebody asks, uh, what's your life work balance like and how do you avoid burnout? Um, cycles, but I've become more unapologetic in my cycles where as in last year was very intense. Uh, I had four, four major life changes in the span of five months. It was, it was not just nausea stopping. But there were three other things that happened at the same time. And for me, like the year 2022 was full enough with life changes, with just nausea stopping, but three other things happened. Um, and then I knew like this winter, I'm just going to do what I have to do and like, you know, make my deadlines in time. And besides that, feel zero pressure. If I want to play FIFA or Civilization, I'm going to play FIFA or Civil Civilization. Um, if I want to see my friends, I'm going to see my friends. I'm not taking on any jobs and I'm not going to feel any pressure to make things even show up at the studio. Um, I, this is a very privileged position. I'm aware of this, but I think it's sort of natural for humans in winter to go into a cycle of just being a bit less motivated to work hard and to just like chill more and do some do do some kind of low level stuff. So my work life balance right now is I'm in a super obsessed mode of like making music, but I haven't I haven't experienced myself like this for a long time. I think it's also because of all these life changes that happened and uh I no longer have to discuss things with Nick and Martin so I can if I want to do it I can just do it like I can do it immediately I can just even put it on Bandcamp the same evening if I want to um so there's a lot of like pressure relief released with those life changes and then there's a lot of gained freedom and a lot of enthusiasm about club music too there's also COVID uh, the things opening back up after COVID it really showed me that the COVID deprivation of club culture really showed me how much it matters to me, which I don't know. It made my life a bit easier knowing that, you know, this shit really matters to me. So I should keep doing it because it's I'm 40. Like re reassuring sort of. Yeah. Yeah. I really felt it. I really felt the lack, what it did to not be in the club. And I felt like, oh, am I too old? You know, kids are into other things can i still relate and then that was before covid and then i had to take a break and it was like well i don't care like i have a place there you know i i for myself i want to put myself in that club i want to put myself there like i feel purpose in life being that ceremony leader, but also partaking in that uh, ceremony on a regular basis. So mm. I've also been going to just the clubs here a bit more. 
not just for like research and not to get drunk, but also just like to really feel. I think I'm starting to feel like, yeah, I just need to be in a group. Even though I don't want to dance, I want to be by the I want to be at the side of the room, but I want to be in that experience with the other people mm. for a couple hours. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I guess it's almost like the same feeling as wanting to go to a coffee shop to work on your laptop or something. It's just nice to be around people sometimes for yeah. sure. Yeah, um, so I don't know, lately I've been super obsessed with m making music and it's just coming really easily and I do something and it's not great, but the next day I'm like, oh, well, maybe I send this to uh, someone else or I'm just going to sit on it, uh, we see what happens and then a, a week later I'm like, oh, I know what to do with it, stuff like that and I haven't felt that for a while, mm. so this is a really nice period, And but my work-life balance is a bit off feel it feels like it because i'm working so much whereas before i was chilling so much so mm. but i just i'm becoming more aware of the of these cycles and then just kind of start not resisting them and rather reinforcing them where i tell people around me like yeah sorry i'm really obsessed with music right now so i'm going to be around a bit less or uh it's going to be winter can you please check in with me from time to time because I might get a bit miserable and uh, I should, you know, I should drag myself out of the house because even though I felt like, feels like I don't want to see any, anybody, actually I feel a lot better if I do. Stuff like that. So really understanding your own cycles and then as far, you know, as you have the, the luxury to, to go with the cycles, then just go with them. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's awesome to hear, man. It seems all pretty positive, like self-awareness, being in, enjoying a craft that you've you know, found that you weren't enjoying for a while there and sounds yeah. like a good time. Anyway, do you want to answer a bunch of dumb, quick questions that people yeah, ask? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> all right. How do you take your coffee? Uh, black. Yeah, I, like, too, actually. I like strong espresso, but then it needs to be really good. And otherwise, uh, I also really like shitty airplane coffee. Like, Yeah, actually, I feel, I feel like you develop a taste for certain shit like that. Like, for instance, I went to rehab last year. I got, like, crazy addicted to ketamine, and I went to rehab for a month. And uh, I, yeah, grew a taste for the shitty rehab coffee. And <laughs> now it's just, like, shitty instant coffee. And, and every time I drink yeah. it now, like, it it's, like, reminds me of that kind of. Or like AA meetings, you know, they always have shitty coffee at AA meetings. Yeah. So it kind yeah, of reminds yeah. me of, of that. Super strong. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, pancakes or waffles? Ooh, why not both? Yeah, it's true. I feel like waffles <laughs> have like better better syrup con container abilities. Oh, but like, there are so many different kinds of pancakes. There's like the Dutch the Dutch pancakes that are kind of thick. Then there's the American pancakes that are really small and even thicker. Then you have the French crepe pancakes. Then you have the kind of more like wrap kind of pancakes that are also pancakes. It's, uh, there's so much to choose from. <laughs> but then, yeah, I've had the, the, the waffles and fried chicken stuff too, which is like, okay, that's a cool thing. Like syrup and chicken. Nice. Yeah, it's like a very American thing. Yeah. Uh, what is the correct pronunciation of garage? Garage. Garage, yeah. That's... UK garage. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Garage. Yeah, only in America do they 
they, they pronounce it like it's French, garage. Garage, yeah. But in, in Dutch, we also say garage, also the more like mm. the French thing. Right. But. Is a hot dog a sandwich? Uh, not interesting. I mean, I think a I mean, hot dog is technically a taco. I also, this reminds of... me of the. This reminds me of that question, like how many holes do pants have? <laughs> have you Have you heard of this question? Like how, how many holes? How many holes do you think pants have? I would say minimum three. You'd think so, but I think the answer is two if you're a topologist, and I think it's. Yeah, I think it's I think it's two because if you if you take a pair of pants like two legs and if you like squish them down it just becomes like a sort of infinity symbol like that so it's just like two holes. But then how does your waist come out? It's like that's the the two holes from the pant legs connect to the waist, so it's like two continuous holes. It's basically like two pipes, right? Right. And the the two pipes just connect at the top. Mm, okay. I think that's I think answer. I think this 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 taco is a taco sandwich is interesting because well, a hot dog uh, is a hot dog. The hot sandwich. dog. The what I find interesting about it is that a lot of online discussions, no, not not just online, just human discussions, are from faulty definitions and people <laughs> disagreeing on something, but not having agreed. To definitions of words, words that both parties agree to. I see mm. it a lot about uh, when people talk about capitalism, like that two people might disagree about capitalism, but they're not talking about the same thing. Right. Like when a Marxist uses the word capitalism, that is a different thing. It's not wrong that that definition to when a a free market capitalist uses the word capitalism, and if they start talking about capitalism then they will disagree but first they need to both agree on a definition that they will both use for the length of that def uh, discussion so that you're talking about the same thing so that when you disagree you know what you are disagreeing with right yeah totally because like in in the marxist definition of capitalism like the greed is baked in there is no capitalism without greed whereas the capitalist definition of capitalism that is about how money works and how you how you stimulate a, a more rolling active economy if capital is used through means of borrowing and interest to stimulate other people's activities rather than me sitting on this money I'm I'm going to give it to you I want it back with some interest but you you go do your thing and 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 make something and do something and the idea of that capitalism is that you know that stimulates a whole economy to become more active and more efficient but when a marxist talks about capitalism he talks about uh, the rich and powerful seizing the means of production and taking away the power from the people that actually should have that power but a capitalist will not agree to that definition of capitalism that the marxist used and vice versa but then they both use the same word and in their head I think they forget that the other people hear some other people hear something different than what they think of when they're saying it. Mm. 
I like that. I just asked you, like, is a hot dog a sandwich? And you're like, let me explain <laughs> capitalism from a Marxist perspective. <laughs> I don't know if I, if I got the complete definition right. For me, it's about the misunderstanding that happens when you don't, when you go into a discussion without, like, clearing up your definitions. Like, you need yeah, to define yeah, yeah, your totally. terms so that if you disagree, you know it's not the definition, it's the actual moral thing behind it. Because I think in a lot of discussions, a lot of moral uh, disagreement is actually a disagreement about a a definition, like a semantical thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. I agree. And 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 there will be some moral disagreements. That I mean, some people are just way more conservative, and other people are more progressive. Some people are more inclusive. Some people are more. Um, uh merit based like that that is a moral thing but um this thing that you know there is no such thing as good capitalism you cannot talk to someone who believes in capitalism if you believe that capitalism in itself is a dirty word right mm. because to the other person it isn't so then you should agree on other words to use so that when you use those words you know that the other person is thinking of what you're thinking when you explain your train of thought why something could be wrong. Right, right. Um, all right, final question. Does it bother you to be referenced to as Tice from Noisia? It's <laughs> a funny one. Um, no, because it is like 23, 24 years of my life. Right, so it makes uh, sense. 20, 22, 23. I don't like it when it's on a flyer or like when it's in the text, yes, but like what I about just, if it was like the the podcast episode is like Tyus from Noisia on the Mr. Bill podcast. I I I wouldn't mind so much. It's when I mind is when I feel like an expectation is being set by the way I'm being framed for me to start also presenting my noisia history while i might not be there to, right, to represent right. my noisia history that's the yep. problem i have with it and that people might be wanting to kind of add a commercial interest like to kind of prom have more promotion because it's a more famous name whereas but like that also no i think behooves you as well right because if they can say ties from noisier then you also can possibly even command more money for the set and potentially uh, more people will come and therefore yeah but if they come with time as well if they come with the expectation it, of wanting to hear noisier music then that's a different thing yeah exactly and then they won't come back so then i shoot myself in the foot like i need mm. like for that i really need to manage expectations like make sure you've listened to what I actually do. Like, mm. listen to my EPs, listen to my DJ sets, because that's what I'm going to be doing. I'm not going to be playing Dead Limit uh, unless you get me very drunk. And, <laughs> and it's one of those evenings and I have a very long set and I feel like it at the end. Like, it's not like I won't, uh, period. It's just like, no, I have so much to say that I never really felt like I had a, uh, the right place to say within Noisia. That is so much more, no, not more, but in a different way, stimulating. And in, in, in some ways also more because, yeah, Noisia became a very, like, became a thing. It became a style. Um, but 
a style is by nature also ex- exclusionary. Like it excludes certain things and includes other things. And I think a lot of the music that I'm making now, I couldn't have released as nausea and that sucked because I really like, like I'm really into this super simple, uh, minimal music with just a bunch of drum computer sounds, but then programmed just right, like rhythmically and then just the saturation and distortion on it at 130 to 140 BPM. But then that wouldn't be nausea. Like it just doesn't, it isn't nausea. So whilst Noisia was around, you didn't do the Tice side project? It started for things that really had nothing in common with Noisia, so they weren't necessarily club song, uh, club tracks. So I did uh, release a studio version of a score for a contemporary dance piece I, re- I wrote. Then I did a um, reflection which was a uh, string quartet, uh, so also very far from from Noisia than Sleeping Beauty Dreams, which was another score for a contemporary dance performance. Uh, that became like full album length, which at some points kind of got into Noisia territory, but then a bit more... Um, a uh, bit more brutal, a bit less refined, whereas Noisia was always like very even when it got super aggressive we were very delicate and for this piece it needed to be a bit more like no it actually needs to be a bit more ugly like it needs to be a bit more edgy it's like that super refined sound here wouldn't work because it's it's polishing something and that's i mean that's always been the beauty of noisia is this super polished dirty stuff but on the Sleeping Beauty Dreams album, it needed to be dirty, dirty. And I think now what I'm doing would be stuff that I couldn't be releasing when Noisia was still there because it is actually kind of in the same world, but then, yeah, it doesn't fit. Mm. And yeah, it no. also, like, I mean, you were talking before about, like, taking on DJ shows so you can, you know, make money uh, as a producer it's also a bit uh, the other way around. Like when I was still DJing Noisia for a living, I couldn't take on Thai shows even if I wanted to. Like my my weekends were booked. So then releasing club music was uh, for myself was a bit shit because I couldn't play it in a, in a Noisia set and I couldn't play it in a Thai set because there were no Thai sets because I was busy playing Noisia sets. So releasing this music now makes so much more sense because I know that I'm going to be in the context that this music is made for. Mm. It's a, the motivation, it's way easier for me to be motivated for it. Right, yeah, it doesn't feel like as futile in certain ways. Yeah, yeah. It's not like the futility is maybe a bit too strong of a word, but it's just for me, the payoff of of my EP was this set on Friday. Uh playing it for people that's what you know this was about it wasn't about me putting uh seven tracks on 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 spotify and bandcamp and then doing emails and uh uh, instagram posts about it it's about i want to instagram posts about the people about me djing and then people reacting to it you know that's what i think is interesting about this music Mm. 
And that's what I was missing before with with the Thai stuff that I was, yeah, like so occupied with noisia that that wasn't a possibility. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, All right. Well, I appreciate you coming on, man. This is a great chat and I've been, yeah, it's a long time that I've wanted to like chat with you at length like this. So I'm glad that we finally got to do it. Is there anything that you want people to specifically go check out uh, if they hear this podcast, I'm sure everyone here knows when, when, of you already. But um, when is it going live? It will probably go live within the next week. All right, maybe two. Yeah, weeks. because coming Friday is Bandcamp day, and then I will have uh, new edits online. But it's That's only on April on Band- seven. April seven. Yeah, it will only be online then, and then uh, until May. The first Friday of May, I'll, I'll put them on again. Um, yeah, I just had uh, an EP out, uh, Shoulder to Shoulder. Um, the one with Nicky Nair and stuff? Nicky Nair, DJHD, uh, DJ, DJ ADHD, uh, Nicholas Steyer on it. Yeah, yeah, I listened to that one the other day while I was driving around with Kill Smith. We He was here working on a new Kill Bill EP and we went to the store and I was like, oh, cool, you Tice. And we checked it on, listened to it, it was good. I enjoyed it. Nice, thanks. Yeah, and uh, Two Fingers is on it, uh, Amon Tobin. Yeah, I noticed that as well. That's awesome. How's it yeah. working with him, by the way? He's like one of my idols for sure. Um, really intuitive. He's really an intuitive person and I'm more of a cerebral person. Like I like to understand what I'm doing and he, like, he still doesn't know music th- theory and every time I get close to try to explain him what he's actually doing, he's like, I don't want to know. <laughs> He still thinks that, you know, if he starts understanding, he will lose his intuitive grasp, which I mm. I, I actually disagree with, but whatever. It, it seems I, to be working actually, for him. So I don't uh, agree with the fact that if you learn music theory, you lose something, uh, except for the loss of not knowing something. But I, I don't know music theory either, so I, I kind of work in that way as well. I just like... If something if something sounds good, I just go for it. And I, I think honestly, music theory is a good way of justifying a piece of music after the fact, but maybe not necessarily such a good tool or whatever for writing a piece of music from start to finish. Unless you're doing composition uh, no, for classical I, music, I think, and then it makes sense. No, I disagree. I think what makes some like Dead Mouse or Zed tunes so cool is music theory. Is like Dead, well, Dead Mouse, I don't think knows music theory, right? No. But he's like Amon Tobin. He has a he has an intuitive understanding yeah, yeah. for for l- level two or le- level three uh, harmonic stuff, right. where there's actual really sympathetic modulations happening. I for me learning music theory, it's just a bit easier to come up with complications of something that still feel like oh it's just saying the same thing but just with a level of of uh interest like a little a little poke through the brain it's not like to make something super fucking free jazz super complicated six chords uh six chords Mm -hmm. in a bar that's not the point the point is to hit people with a note that they didn't expect that hits them and he's like, whoa, what's that note? And then after you give it context, you're like, it resolves and it, and then it goes back and you're like, whoa, that was cool. I want to hear that again. Like that yeah, you moment. You can do that without knowing music theory too. Yes, but it's easier. It's, I find it, I think it's easier if you, if, if at least you train your hands on the keyboard. Mm. Um, but also 
if you understand what you're doing, you have a bunch of things that you know uh, could work in this context. I don't right. know, the, at least it's for me, but... I can agree with I that agree definitely with... from a production standpoint. Like I know if I'm making something and something doesn't quite sound right, I can very quickly figure out why it's not sounding right and fix that problem or know what my options are at least and and have a few different directions in which yeah. I can potentially There's also over. that there's also that in music theory that if you have a problem with a melody where something doesn't fit like I'm way quicker in figuring it out than mm. I'm on. Right. Because I just go to a keyboard, oh this is in that scale, what's the other one? Oh, it's that. So maybe then if we transpose it to there then it will sound sympathetic. And he's like, what did you just do? But it's it sounds good, but what did you just do? And it's like, yeah, okay. Yeah, that I mean, this is what you get for you know l learning these things. Yeah, that but makes a lot of sense. Anyway, he's I mean he's great. Um we have very uh similar uh characters and interests, and we are both very uh uh cerebral. Um like in our head, kind of introverts. Uh, mm. uh, he doesn't have this thing that I have uh, that where on stage I become kind of like extrovert, <laughs> which is also a reason why he did that ISAM uh, yeah, show. So he can, because like, he wanted to. Inside a cage, basically. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he wanted to the, do something big. That was the coolest fucking show, man. That, that shit like, yeah. changed a lot for me, for sure. Yeah. Speaking of Amon, really, Really, really worked with that music. Like, if you put an EDM show in that, yeah, I, I don't think it would have worked. Mm. And I think that that album was so conceptual, and and uh, it was it wasn't dancing music, but it was very much like it really works on sound systems, like big sound systems, and yeah, yeah, for people to experience that in a group, like. I w I went to it in Amsterdam and uh I was I was very impressed by it. Like that like that is an audiovisual show. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's definitely I think the highest level of audiovisual show that I've ever seen. Yeah. And I've seen some pretty fucking sick ones, but nothing that's yeah. made me quite feel as impressed as that one for sure. I want to um, see 9 Inch Nails one time. Like I've I'm only sure. heard like yeah. the sickest things about 9 Inch Nails. Yeah, I think when you have that much money, <laughs> you can <laughs> no, but, you can afford to make anything crazy sick. But also, obviously, yeah. that's not to to reduce Trent Reznor's creativity or anything yeah. like that. Obviously, he's an insane. And and guy. but it's that it's also really more about like talent scouting and team building, like finding the right people and then motivating them to to excel. Is like when you don't do things yourself, still you need to be really good at other skills to get the mm. best out of people working with other people because just paying someone doesn't mean you'll get something amazing. You need to find the right person and then know how to get them motivated so they so they give their best. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, cool, man. Well, thanks a lot for coming on, dude. This was a great chat and I, hopefully we can do it again in like Absolutely. a year or something. Yeah, I'm surprised. I'm surprised there were there was not a lot of technical questions. I thought this was a I way mean, more I'd, technical no, I mean, podcast, but I'm, well, ha I'm, I, I'm always more happy to talk about other things than technical. Like technical is just stuff yeah. I think you have to do or you have to watch other people do them, but really like not like you really have to do it yourself. Yeah, well, Whereas, I mean, for me, like YouTube is like my technical place, right? Or Twitch. It's like if I want to show people like some 
technical shit, I'll I'll just pull up Ableton and screen record and be like, this is how I do the technical shit. The podcast for me is more like this other side of my personality that I also feel like I want to express, which is more like ideas and just chatting uh, cool. about random shit. You know? Cool. Yeah, I feel like I need different outlets for different kinds of things. So yeah, this is more of like an idea place, I guess. Maybe I should do a podcast too then. I'd, you I'd, be really I'd, good I'd, at it, man. I've, I've come to really see Twitter as like an expression of a need like and I put it in there and that's it but yeah obviously Twitter's going to shit it's and really it's, difficult to express an idea properly through Twitter like for instance the other day there was that not low thing where she like took the sample pack demo track and pulled it apart and like made her own song out of it and a few sections of it sounded incredibly similar to the demo track and people just like shat on her and I like post an opinion about it my opinion was not that I think it's cool or awesome or good or anything like that. I don't. I, and my idea, though, was more so like I think any investment in the electronic music industry or any industry is a net positive, especially if it's in the arts, because like, you know, from that she then made fans. She you know released music on record labels, uh, generated more money for the electronic music scene in general, you know, probably employed yeah. other people as opening acts for her and stuff like that, which is all positive shit. And that was my my opinion on it is like maybe just don't shit on her quite as hard because like actually in the end it's a net positive in my opinion and people like just that opinion to try and express on Twitter it's quite quite a nuanced opinion and yeah, yeah. people would automatically just like Bill's cancel fuck him for that opinion <laughs> and it's just like all right whatever yeah yeah there's I think that says more about society than about anything else that people are so ready to go into us and them kind of narratives it's like yeah. either you're a good guy or you're a bad guy and there's nothing in between and i think that's really because everyone everyone is so close to the edge of something you know and it's been coming like ever since uh, i don't know for a long time i think the fact that that trump got even elected is already because people are on the edge like things aren't working for them they're angry they, they'll take anyone that promises change. We see the same in, in Holland as well, where people are voting for parties that 20 years ago it was unimaginable that, unimaginable that they would get anything but like a fringe vote, and now they're, um, the biggest single party in in the latest like local elections is actually, uh, a brand new party that just run for the first time they have the most seats of ev everyone it's crazy mm. and it's pretty much a single issue party for for farmers but because they're against the establishment i think a lot of people uh voted for them too we have this huge problem in uh no i won't go into it i won't go into it we're already concluding <laughs> i just can't stop talking like always fair fair all right dude well hey man i'm gonna hit stop recording here but i appreciate yeah. you uh coming on that's cool. awesome
Yo, what's up? Thanks for listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. This show is produced and edited by Robert Fumo. You can get early access to the show by going to my website, mrbillstunes.com and paying me instead of Patreon. And remember to go rate and review on iTunes or I'm going to come to your house and punch your dog in the throat, upper deck your toilet and fuck your partner. Note, I may or may not do those last couple of things. Uh, You should probably just go rate it on iTunes or Spotify or whatever it is that you listen to the podcast on because it really helps the podcast. Um, But but just know that that it'll go a long fucking way to me not doing those things if you do go do that. So uh, just just putting that out there.